Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're going to talk about love today. Our text is not John 3.16, but I wanted to start with that because I know just about all of you have heard of that. It's the most famous verse of the Bible. But I think a lot of Christians aren't sure about God's love. At least I know during my early years as a Christian, that was a, that was a problem for me. It says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. God so loved the world. But do you think that maybe God doesn't love you? Now, I know God so loves the world, but how could God love me? He knows me. He knows my selfishness, my flaws, my failures. How could he possibly so love me? And maybe some of you don't have any doubts about uh, the love of God. Maybe you're not quite sure what that means. Maybe he didn't show up sometime when you thought he should have or you're wondering just how involved God really is, how his love plays out in your life. If you're in that first group like I was, then I'm hopeful when you leave here this morning, you, you will know that no matter what you've done, no matter how flawed or terrible or maybe even evil your thoughts and actions have been, God doesn't just so love the world. He so loves you. In your deepest moments of darkness and rebellion and disobedience and wickedness, Almighty God loves you. And if you're in the other group, you know God loves you, but you're not always absolutely sure what that's going to look like in your life, then maybe you'll get a little closer to the answer this morning. Our text this morning is John 13, verses 1 through 17. Listen now to the word of our holy and good and loving God. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. 
When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, and nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Maybe you've heard about the four kinds of love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. It's a great book, and I would really recommend it to you. It's a really good read. The Four Loves, uh, and, and it talks about what C.S. Lewis sees are the four different kinds of love. But that's not what I want to talk with you about this, this morning. It seems to me that, that most kinds of love will fit into one of two broad categories. We'll call the first value-based love. We, we love things that are valuable to us. You love your new outfit. You love your fancy watch. You love the Rocky Mountains. You love a wonderful piece of music. You love your job. You love your family. You love your life. There's nothing bad about any of that, right? There are things that are valuable to you, and, and you love them. I'd call that the first broad category, value-based love. And then there's a second category, and I'd call it love-based value. It means that the thing you love is made valuable simply because you love it. Maybe as a small child, you had a, a favorite blanket, and you love that blanket. If you saw it today, you'd be appalled. Dragged through dirt and, 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 and over floors, drooled on, discolored, dirty. There's not really much to love there, but your three-year-old self loved that blanket. You wouldn't go anywhere without it. It was important because you love it. Your love made it valuable. Or maybe it was a teddy bear you dragged around with you everywhere you went. Its fake fur rubbed off, one button eye missing, stained and, and smelly. But that teddy bear was your dearest companion. You couldn't get 20 cents for it at a garage sale, but but you loved it and it made it, and, and that love made it valuable. And even now as an adult, there are things without any real worth that can be made valuable just because you love them. Some of you have service animals and they're valuable, not our dog. We, we feed him, we house him, we pay his medical bills, he sleeps on our bed, but in the 10 years he's lived with us, he's performed zero service <laughs> and contributed nary a penny to his room and board. <laughs> he's a total freeloader, but we love our dog. We'd never put up with him if he were a cat. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to compare the love God has for you and for me with the way people love their dogs. I just want you to see that there are times when the object of our love is made value, valuable by nothing more than the simple fact of our love. And if, and if our love makes that true for things like blankets and teddy bears and pets, how much more does the love of God who is love make it true for us? 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Brett opened with that this morning. 
Most Christians believe that. They believe God is love. But at least for me, I thought love was just one of the characteristics of God. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is love. I've come over the years to see I was very wrong. I believe now that for much of my early Christian life, I didn't understand God at all. And I think that's a danger for us Christians. We see Jesus, we say, yeah, he's beautiful, and he teaches important lessons, and, and he saved me from the wrath of God by dying for my sins. And all that's true, isn't it? And, and look, if that's true, that, and that's mainly who God is, then fair enough. That's amazing, and that's worth our obedience to Christ. But is that really all the Christian life is about? Slogging along and keeping the rules and doing my best because I owe him? Or here's another way I think Christians might slip up. It's, it's the transactional way. If I follow Jesus and I, I keep his rules as best I can, and, and when I fall short, I confess, and, and I do my best to do better, and so hopefully God will notice and he'll reward me. It's a decent job, enough money to pay the bills, successful children, a happy relationship with my spouse. Is that what the Christian life is about, following Jesus mainly because I think I owe him, or following Jesus because what he does for me and my family? Jesus saves you from hell, and, he, and you get to go to heaven, and, and I think that's a lot. I'm looking forward to heaven. But under either of those two options, if Jesus wasn't there, would it really matter all that much? I'm not saying God doesn't want all those things for you. I think he does. But I think he wants to give you something so much more than those things. He wants to give you himself. Let me ask you something. What, what do you think God was doing before the foundation of the world? In John 17, 24, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before a single atom existed, before a nebulae or a planet or a single star, we see Father loving Son and Son loving Father, the Spirit uniting them in one God, perfect unity. Love not qualified or diluted or diminished in any way, absolute love. What do you think that looks like? What would it look like if absolute love showed up in your life? What would it look like for God to show up in your life? In the Bible, they're the same thing. What would it look like for absolute love to show up? What would it look like for God to show up? It looks like Jesus. Jesus says over and over, if you want to see God, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. Look right here. In John 12, 45, Jesus says, when you look at me, you're seeing the Father. You want to know what God looks like? Keep looking right here. Isn't that an extraordinary thing for a human being to say? You want to see God? Look at me. It's astonishing. It's, it's amazing, especially when you consider that the Jews were the last people in the world who would ever believe that a human being could be God. But look how John's gospel begins. It starts by saying, Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He says, Jesus was the word of God. He's the communication. He's the explanation. He's everything God wants you to know about who he is is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the God we get to see and touch and know and hear so we know exactly what God looks like. And what does God look like? He looks like the Father loving the Son, united by the Spirit, and the Son loving the Father, united by the Spirit. He looks like the bright, shining light in the darkness turning potential into reality and creating an overflowing love so vast we can barely stand to witness it. And then infusing all of his creation with that love. He's holy, he's almighty, he's all those omni things. But all those other things first and foremost rest on the foundation, the Father loving the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Son loving the Father and the Holy Spirit, the three united as one God. Most of the churches I've been in and visited, it seems to me they try to avoid talking too much about the Trinity. It's just, maybe they think it's just too hard to figure out or it's confusing. Why do we avoid it? Why don't we lead with Trinity? That's the headline. Because the Trinity isn't ununderstandable. It's not a mystery. It's a revelation. If you don't get Trinity, you don't get the God of the Bible. Now, it's certainly true that when Adam disfigured creation with sin, he, he turned and twisted love. It's become little more uh, than an echo of the real thing. But our, love, our, our sin hasn't changed who God is. God is still love. And here in John chapter 13, we get an example, of a picture of absolute love. What's it look like? Verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is about to go to the cross. Do you know that about this passage? Within, within hours... He's going to go through a phony trial, a, a brutal torture, a God-forsaken execution. And what's he doing the night before the very first day of his life? He's loving his disciples. You'd think he'd be thinking about other things, don't you? And, and you know about these disciples? They're clueless. He, he's told them over and over he's going to die, and they're no comfort at all. You, you'd think Jesus could have found better friends to share his last night with. But, but these guys are kind of blockheads. And, and yes, they go on to do great things, but during most of the gospel, they look like blockheads. And the night before a God-forsaken execution, he stoops down to their filthy, dirty, smelly feet, and he does the job normally reserved for the lowest household slave. That was normally a job done by the lowest servant in the house to pick up the towel, fill the basin, and wash the filthy feet of the family and their guests. And in those days, <laughs> feet were dirty. They, they didn't have paved sidewalks. They didn't walk around in fashionable boots. They wore open-toed sandals in muddy, dirty, dusty streets and fields. And here's something I hadn't noticed till I started preparing this sermon. It's the way verses three and four are connected. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see it? That uh, little word, so, it, it means the same thing as therefore. Knowing that he had come from the Father, knowing he was the mighty counselor, the everlasting God, the prince of peace, the heir of the cosmos, knowing all of that, therefore he stoops. Therefore, he serves. Therefore, he cleanses. Therefore, he takes on the job of the lowest servant, the slave. What do you think about that? Knowing he is the divine emperor of the universe, therefore, he takes the clothing of a servant. Therefore, he stoops and serves and cleanses. That little word so shows us that Jesus, he, he serves not in spite of being God. He serves because he is God. Because he is love incarnate, he serves, he sacrifices, he gives. Sometimes people talk about Jesus like he set aside his divinity to, to take a little break from, from being God. He, he becomes fully human, he veils his godness for 33 years, he does signs and wonders, he, he preaches, and then he gives himself up for us. And again, fair enough. If Jesus did that, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? If God decided to step down from the throne for 33 years and, and give serving a try, that would be amazing. Even if it was just a, a temporary vacation from his divine nature. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says, because he is in very nature God, therefore he stoops, therefore he suffers, therefore he serves. That's astonishing, isn't it? Because he is the fullness of deity, because the Father, Son, and Spirit have always been united in perfect love, because he is the true bread from heaven, therefore he serves. As Jesus washes his filthy, dirty, smelly disciples' feet, and 24 hours later as he dies on a cross, it's not Jesus taking a break from his deity. It's Jesus expressing the most basic, fundamental feature of his deity. This is impossible, passionate, tender love. And you know what it looks like? It looks like a servant stooping at your feet, cleansing you. It's unthinkable. But at the same time, it's the deepest, truest thing in the universe. Does that shock you? That shocks me. Have you ever tried to tell someone about God and they come back with something like, eh, I'm too smart for all that. I don't, I don't buy all that God stuff. I've learned to ask a follow-up question. Really, what God don't you believe in? And usually they'll describe some big grandfather type with a long beard and big biceps scrawled across the sky, distributing his gifts to the, to the lucky and tossing down thunderbolts to, to the less fortunate. Really? That sounds like Zeus. I think all of us would agree we don't believe in Zeus. Now, can we talk about Jesus? Can we get serious about the real God? Can we consider Jesus Christ? And what does Jesus say? Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus says, you'll see me for who I am when I am lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, John 3, 14. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. 
John 8, 28. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John 12, 32. Jesus keeps on saying, my hour is coming. And when it comes, I'll be glorified. I'll be lifted up. And you can imagine the uh, disciples wondering what it was going to look like when Jesus was lifted up. Blockheads they might be, but, but maybe you can forgive them for thinking it was going to be to a throne or maybe some huge stage or, or, or maybe even a, a great majestic war horse. And then you get to the end of John's gospel, and he is lifted up. He's lifted up on a cross. And if the light of God's godness is shown by his washing the disciples' feet, then this is where we see the bright, shining light of God at full strength. The fountain of all life demonstrates his power most profoundly when he is pouring that life out for you and me. This God, this God, he expresses his godness by dying for you. So we agree we don't believe in the Zeus God. What about this God? Is this a God you can believe in? This Jesus who lays aside his robe, picks up the towel and washes his disciples' feet? This Jesus who gives and serves and then sacrifices his life so that you and I can, can live? And not just live, but finally become the people we were originally meant to be? Here's another question. How do you think you'd have felt as Jesus made his way around the room heading for you? I think I would have probably had much the same reaction as Simon Peter in verse 8. It's Simon Peter's turn to get a foot scrubbing from Jesus. And Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Is that what you would have said? That's probably what I would have said. <laughs> Or would you have sat there quietly waiting your turn? God's making his way around the room, and he wants to get a hold of you. And he's getting closer and closer. Would you be nervous? You're dirty, and you know it. Do you want God to get a hold of you? Probably not, right? Maybe you're worried he'd humiliate himself. God on his knees, cleansing your feet? Probably you'd feel unworthy, wouldn't you? To be washed by the author of life. I would. I'd probably have exactly the same reaction as Simon Peter. Have you ever gotten a pedicure? I haven't. I can't imagine someone kneeling before messing with my feet. Someone other than my wife. Thank you, Julie. Imagine the almighty God of the universe giving you a pedicure. In the words of Donnie Brasco, forget about it. And yet here is the Lord of the cosmos stooping down to your stinking feet. Why? Doesn't it look like he's demeaning himself? Why does he do it? He tells us in verse 8, Peter says to Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answers, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In hindsight, it's not hard to imagine that Jesus is thinking, look, tomorrow I'm going to die. And so I have one last chance, just a short time left, to remind you one more time what this has all been about. Who I am, why I've come, and, and what you should do about it. In verse 7, he told them, you don't understand yet, but you will. 
And I think in part, Jesus is acting out a parable of everything he came to do. There's Jesus, the master of the table, and he gets up from his place and he kneels and he cleanses and then he rises up and returns to the head of the table. It's the most amazing love story ever. It's Beauty and the Beast written all over creation. The son leaves his place with the father. He descends, he serves, he suffers. Why? So he can wash us because we are dirtier than we can ever admit, even to ourselves. And then having saved us from our beastly selves, the prince of heaven rises to sit at the right hand of the father. Broadly speaking, I know of two kinds of people who don't think they need Jesus. Those who don't realize they're dirty at all, they think, well, they're pretty good people. They don't really need a savior. And those who think they're too dirty, God wouldn't want anything to do with me. God could never love me. Even as Christians, we can forget how spiritually unclean we are. We can, we can forget right up until we're face to face with the King of Kings, and he says he wants to get a hold of you. I've come to deal with you personally. It doesn't matter if you're as smart as Albert Einstein or as rich as Elon Musk. Spiritually, you need washing, and so do I. You know the things you've done, the ways you've treated other people, the things you haven't done that you should have done. Do you stay, see the stain within you? Well, here's Jesus washing the disciples' feet, but it's a picture. It's a picture of everything Jesus came to do. The same hands that washed these feet on Thursday night are going to be nailed to a cross on Friday, on Good Friday. Why? John tells us in his letter, 1 John, in chapter 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus the Son purifies us from sin. It says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. You know you need that. The blood of Jesus purifies you from all sin? Is there something you avoid thinking about because you're stained, because it makes you feel ashamed? Hear the word of God. The blood of Jesus purifies you from your sin if you'll let him get a hold of you. Let's talk about how we apply this. Maybe your gut reaction is to say, thanks, Jesus, but I'm good. I pretty much have it all together, and certainly compared to Everybody else I know, I'm, I'm in good shape. You need a better group of friends, by the way. <laughs> or maybe you think, no, Jesus, no, my, my mess is more than you can handle. You have no idea of the things I've done. To think I could be free of those things, well, that's just wishful thinking. One com commentator I read said, if you reject Jesus, then you are asking for hell. If you won't let Jesus get a hold of you, then you are literally saying you prefer hell. Because if Jesus is the source of light and life and love, then to be disconnected from him is to be lost in the darkness and death and fear. You need Jesus to get a hold of you, and so do I. And he's coming around the room this morning, and he's asking, will you let me get a hold of you? Or will you push me away, keep me at arm's strength, afraid, isolated, hardened what will it be he's coming around the room this morning and he says i know there are things that need cleaning i can do it i want to do it and you're reluctant 
because you don't know what it would mean to let Jesus get a hold of you. Look at how this passage continues in verse 12 to 14. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, now what? If, as we discussed earlier, the Christian life is mostly about keeping the rules and expecting God to just keep up his end, then you might expect Jesus to demand a fair return. I've washed your feet. Now you wash my feet. I've served you. Now it's your turn to serve me. And if the Christian life is primarily about rule-keeping, then that makes sense. But that's not God. That's not true love. That's not how God works, is it? And we know that because even way back in Genesis, when God makes covenant with Abraham, it's God who accepts the consequences if either side of the covenant doesn't hold up their end. Abraham was off napping. It was God who walked between the paces and, in effect, promised if I don't keep up my end of the covenant, I'll pay the price. And, if I, and Abraham, if you don't keep up your end of the covenant, I'll pay the price. And what a price it was. God doesn't do the I've scratched your back, now you scratch mine kind of transactional relationships we're used to. So this is how Jesus ends the sentence. Now that I've washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. That's the absolute love of God. Absolute love cleanses and it restores. But it doesn't say, now you owe me. Absolute love says, pay it forward. Pass it on. Receive the blessing, then pass it along. Be a blessing. Sound familiar? You hear it at the end of every meeting here. You hear it every Sunday. And you hear it because that's what the Bible tells us is the way to the blessed life. Alice Thomas Ellis was a, an English writer who said, the world's tragedy is that men love women, women love children, and children love hamsters. It's all quite hopeless. But I think Ellis is only partly right. Of course, women love their husbands and children love their parents, but I think she's put her finger on maybe the ultimate reality of the universe and far from hopeless, it's quite hopeful because love flows down and then goes out. It, it passes down from God, it comes to you and me, and then it goes out from us. Look, if our love can make blankets and teddy bears and pets valuable, just because we love them, how, how much more valuable how much more valuable are you just because the God of the universe loves you? No matter how unworthy you feel, the fact of God's love means you are the best in the world. You individually, personally, are the best ever. God doesn't play favorites. If you're in Christ, then you are his loved and valued child. And no matter your past, Father, Son, and Spirit love you as much as they love one another. How much, does the, how much does the father love the son? That's how much he loves you. And you were invited to participate in that love because how, that's how the love of God works. It, it flows from God, comes down to you and me, and then it goes out. 
There's no secret to getting the blessed life. Jesus tells us right here in verse 17, Jesus says, you will be blessed if you follow his example and love. The Bible tells us you are created from God's overflowing love. You are an expression of the love of God. And that love has made you the most valuable thing in all the world. And your greatest call is to receive God's love and extend it to others. That's the blessed life. That's the happy life. A, a flow of outgoing love. Will you join it or will you choose the cursed life? You know the cursed life? Hold petty grudges. Nurse hardness in your heart. Build up the bitterness. Let the stain spread. And drown beneath waves of misery and regret. That's the cursed life. Why would you ever want that? Open your arms to Jesus. Let him get a hold of you. We're going to come to our Lord's table this morning, and, and when we do, I, I hope you'll join me inviting Jesus to get a hold of you. You know that God so loved the world. I hope you know that God so loves you. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord all your life, and you just need a, a refreshed sense of his love. Or maybe you've never considered the possibility that absolute love could show up in your life. Absolute lo love has come for you. And his name is Jesus. And if you believe that, if you've let Jesus get a hold of you, cleanse you, bring you into the throne room of his Father as a child of God, then you are welcome at the table. If you have not, then you should let the elements pass. And if you're interested, if you're wondering whether you could believe in this God of love rather than all the other gods none of us believe in, please find one of the elders after the meeting. We, we would love to talk with you about Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I've also passed on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Prepare the bread, and we'll take it together after we pray. Father God, the Bible tells us that love is patient and kind and humble, always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. And Scripture says that's who you are. You are foremost and above all else, love. Forgive us, Father, for our doubts, our difficulties, our failures. And Father, help us, please, to see your love in our lives. Take and eat. Jesus, our Lord and our King, we are overwhelmed when we consider that it is us who have fallen so far short, us who have hurt others so deeply, us who have damaged our own lives. It is us who you nevertheless pursue, us who you died for, 
us who you love without limit. What grace, Jesus, what, what mercy. I can scarcely imagine how we can allow our, ourselves to be loved so much. And yet, Jesus, where else can we turn? Give us, Jesus, the power to accept your gift of love. Help us to share that love with others. And please, Lord Jesus, forgive us when we don't do it as well as we should. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, you have loved and united in love, Father and Son, for all of eternity. Holy Spirit, will you renew and refresh us with God's love? Holy Spirit, we long to see, to experience, to taste the love of God. Will you make it so? And will you empower us to participate in that love? And will you give us the courage, strength, and humility to extend that love to others? In Christ, amen. Will you rise with me to receive the uh, benediction this morning? This is taken from uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You are blessed to be loved by the creator, king of the cosmos. Receive his blessing of true love and pay it forward to be a blessing. Thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.